Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. I'm Dave, and I'll be uh, reading the scripture this morning, John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And this will be in the... uh, Christian Standard Bible version, and Mike, I've got pictures. Mike was curious if I actually knew how to read. I've got help. So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, y'all. He is risen. I had to do it too, okay? Uh, For those of you who are new here, my name's Scott. I get to serve as the pastor of this church, and it is an honor and a privilege. Uh, If you haven't met my family yet, my wife is over there. Uh, You can say hi. And uh, my kids are all the way in the back. They're ages seven, six, and four. Uh, We've been in a series uh, through the Gospel of John in the last several weeks, uh, And it's been called I Am. And and really we're looking at the nature and character of who Jesus is. Because in reality there's ways that we can hold distorted images of who Jesus is. And we really want to know truthfully in his word who he says he is. And so that's why we're here. Now it's crazy to me that uh, the, the, the way we've been going through this series lands us on this passage in particular today. Right? And I, I got to tell you, I put in no effort to organize the way it landed today. Uh, God did that, so I am not going to take credit for something that he did. When we started the series, I didn't know it was going to outline and land here. So I praise the Lord for doing that. And I want to go ahead and spoil the whole morning for you. I want to tell you what the whole morning's going to be all about, and that's this. Jesus' resurrection shows his authority over the temple. Can you read that with me? One, two, three. Jesus' resurrection shows his authority over the temple. Now, if you're newer to this, you're reading that, you're like, oh, we're in for a boring Sunday. Okay. But what I want to tell you is that this truth changes everything. And I'll show you how. This truth here changes everything. And it's going to take me a while to get to this truth, so Fasten your seatbelts and hold on for the ride because it's going to be a doozy, all right? So, so let me far, start out by first saying this. Um, how many of your parents here have been for a while or maybe used to have kids in your home? And uh, you used, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, what are some of the worst experiences you've had with your kids in the night? Puking, yep. Puking all over. What else? Bedwetting. Colic, yeah. Guys, one of the worst experiences you can have as a parent is a rough night. 
a rough night with a kid. Sometimes you'll wake up to a kid crying in their, in their bed because uh, they had a bad dream. Sometimes you'll wake up, the bed's wet, and you don't know which end it came out of. You, you wake up, and the kid wakes you because they're literally right in your face just staring at you, which freaks me out. Or... Uh, you wake up because somehow the kid snuck into your bed while you were sleeping and has been sleeping with you and woke you with a karate kick to the back. Or their fingernails digging into your arms. Now, I'm not speaking from, actually, I am speaking from personal experience. And usually, the roughest nights are the last one, when the kid stays in the bed with you. Now, we're not going to get in here and debate about parenting styles. Oh, you shouldn't let a kid stay in bed with you. We can talk about that in a parenting series later on down the road. But, but uh, just to say this, one thing I've noticed, when a kid falls asleep in bed with my wife and I, when a kid falls asleep, I don't know if it's just my kids, you may be able to help confirm this for me, um, but, but they will sleep as close to you as possible. Am I the only one? No. The Lord said there is not a, a struggle that is not common to man. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And so, so they have to be like touching me when they sleep, even if they're fast asleep, right? And, and, and so we, my wife and I, the Lord has been gracious, and we have a king bed, which means there's room to move. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll get even closer to the edge to get the freedom to sleep peacefully. And you know what that child will do? Roll right over and get up against your back. Or, or this happened several times with one of my kids. They would be fast asleep and I, I move over and this is what they do. They move their leg over. Like they, like they intentionally did it, but they're still asleep. I don't get it, but I thank the Lord I'm not the only one. But you see, I, I see that, and I can't help but think that there's something about being close to Daddy. I can't help but wonder if there's this inner desire within us that compels us to our fathers, compels us to our parents, not just some sort of fearful thought or a bad dream at night, but there's actually something more instinctual within us that inclines us to be close to daddy, to touch dad. It's in fact the way we were made. You and I, here's a little truth bomb for you, we were made for the presence of God. We actually have a craving within us for the presence of our Heavenly Father. We instinctually long for it more than you may actually realize. And, you, and deep down, if you really take a look at it, you know it to be true, right? Now, now, some of you may not have realized it yet, simply because, matter of fact, you may have, it may have been numbed by some really hard experiences in your life, or maybe it's just temporarily, momentarily, pitifully uh, satisfied by some cheap knockoff that the world tries to offer you in its place. But like really, ask yourself this question. Seriously, just take a second. When's the last time that you experienced full and permanent contentment? I thought so. 
Now, I, you probably didn't know I was asking for a response. That's the whole point. Maybe you could say, well, it was when I had that big feast the other day. Man, boy, we ate, we ate good yesterday at Tom and Barbara's house. I was satisfied. Or, or maybe, I don't know about you, maybe some of your journeys took you down a road with a, a, a relationship with some, some person who uh, you, you enjoyed sexual intimacy with, and, and that was the most of it. Uh, or, and that was contentment for you. Or, or maybe, maybe it was getting that pay raise at work. Man, that, that satisfied. But you know that doesn't work. You know that didn't last, right? Because you're hungry now, right? I, my stomach is growling right now. Like, you, you ate yesterday, but you're still hungry today. You, you, you had that sexual intimacy with that person, but now you're feeling used and alone and all by yourself. And, and not only that, but that pay raise came, and then the car broke down, and then the house had so many things you had to fix, so that pay raise only got you this far. Guys, it's not enough. The truth is, there's nothing in this world that will be enough. In fact, C.S. Lewis, he wrote it this way. He said, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they can never quite keep their promise. If I find, here's the most famous quote, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Friends, we, we, we have these things called catechisms in the church. They're just kind of question and answers. Our kids are going through a new city one, but there's a Westminster Shorter Catechism, and the first question that it asks, it says, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? In other words, why do we exist? What's our purpose? You know what it answers? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God, I would say, by enjoying God forever. Okay, so enjoying God? Wait, is that really? Okay, we'll, we'll talk about this in a minute. But, but, but this is what we were made for. To enjoy God. So uh, some of you may have some experience with this yourself. You know how sometimes you go to the grocery store and you get those things in the refrigerated section and you look on the label and it says, keep what? Keep refrigerated. So what do you do? You go home and you put it in the refrigerator, right? And there it stays, stays good. Friends, deep down, written in the code of our DNA is written a label that says, keep with God. Keep in his presence. Keep with God. You want to know why? Because there's so much that God's presence brings to us as human beings, right? There's so much that we get out of being with God. Scripture says there's full joy there, full permanent joy. It says that, that there's pleasures forevermore in his presence. It also says it's where we find what's called permanent gladness. Whoa. In his presence, it says that there's, there, there can be, uh, we can be fully, freely, forever satisfied by his goodness. So, of course, it makes sense for us to have that label written on the soles of our hearts. 
And praise God, that's how humanity's history started, right? Remember, you know Genesis 1? We start there, Genesis 1, in the beginning. Okay, well, it started in a garden with God. Our story as humanity, our shared narrative starts in a garden with God. Where his presence was. Now, now, I want to pause, press the pause button and remind you that we are on our way to that truth. On our way to this text. But I told you it's going to be a long way. So let me resume. Just hang in there, okay? Guys, humanity was made to be in God's presence. It's what God said was very good when he first created mankind. When he first created all things. And being convinced of that changes everything about how we arrange our lives, by the way. But that's a sermon for another day. But we're in the garden, we have God, we're, we get God, and then what happens? That little, little snake dude walks in, or slithers in, right? Satan, the deceiver, he comes in and he tells us that God messed some things up. That he, he didn't actually do everything right, and until we took matters into our own hands and corrected the problem, it would forever stay that way. And we know that that was a lie, but boy did we eat that lie. We ate the lie and we sinned against God and God being so good and so holy and so loving instead of just saying, well, you had one shot, (laughs) done, I tried, oh well, and walking off. No, he graciously removed removed, removed humanity from his consuming presence and at the same time issued a promise that they wouldn't stay that way, that we wouldn't stay that way. He issued a promise that we'd be with him again, that he would crush the head of the snake. But there humanity was, right? After we ate the lie and we're out of the presence of God, we're in this new world that's now fallen and not good. Guys, what happens when you take something that's supposed to be refrigerated and take it out and leave it out of the refrigerator just for a few hours? Well, first it turns lukewarm, right? Who likes lukewarm stuff? Jesus doesn't, I'll tell you that. (laughs) What happens after a few days? It starts to get raunchy. Like you can walk into the house and the first step you take in, the draft just whops you on the face with this nasty smell. What happens after a few weeks? It starts growing some weird stuff in it, right? And and I wouldn't suggest drinking it ever, right? Same thing happens with humanity. Take us out of the presence of God and we start growing weird stuff on us. We we get stinky. It gets messy. Makes us want to throw up sometimes. I mean, am I not wrong? Turn, Turn the news on for five minutes and what happens? After five minutes, you do want to throw up because the world is a ridiculously difficult place. Ridiculously broken unfathomably messed up. And yet, and yet God doesn't leave us there. He didn't leave us in that place. He, he comes after us. 
And so what we see in this story is God starts the endeavor to pursue us again by making a covenant with a guy named Abraham. He promises to bless him and his family and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. Fast forward and Abraham's descendants are in slavery to Egypt and they need redemption and rescuing and God through many signs and wonders goes after his people and and saves them out of slavery, leads them into the wilderness and there he sets a covenant with them again they had their part but his part was that he was going to be their God and he was going to dwell with them again he was going to be with people again he was going to dwell among men now the way that happened the way that happened safely for us fallen broken human beings was that it was going to happen in what's called the tabernacle or you might call it the tent of meeting and this place was to provide us two things Atonement and access. Can you say those things? One, two, three. Atonement and access. You see, atonement is what forgives our sin. And access is what gives us access to God. So this tabernacle was that place where our sins could be atoned for and we could safely be in God's presence. You know, Joshua was said to have loved the presence of God so much that he wouldn't leave the tabernacle. He'd never depart from it. So there's, there's that imagery. And that tabernacle traveled with the people all the way into the promised land. And when they get to the promised land, they set up shop. They make their home. And, and goodness, they, they, they set up the capital of Jerusalem. And, and David puts it in, he's got it in his heart to build a temple. Solomon's the one who does it. And Solomon builds this miraculous, this grand temple. And he prays a prayer of dedication over it. And as soon as he's finished praying, fire falls down from heaven and crashes into the temple and fills the space because God's presence was there among his people and he's pleased to dwell with them. You see, God loves to dwell among us. Why? That part I don't really know. At least from my perspective, Scripture says it's because he loves us with an unsteady or unfast, unfailing, steadfast love. You see, the temple and the tabernacle were how people came to understand and relate to God. It was central to their culture. It was central to their relationship with this Yahweh God who had rescued them from slavery and called them his own. And yet... Yet this promise to dwell among his people in the tabernacle and in the temple came with our part, came with the Jews' responsibility. And that was what? To keep his word. And how'd that go for him? Pretty terribly. Like miserably failing. Generation after generation, it did not go well. They, they continued to reject God. They would, they would build their own temples. Kings would set up their own temples for other gods. Right around God's temple. Right around Yahweh's temple. The people were breaking their covenant. And so generation after generation, long enough, it, it, it took that, that years later, a prophet named Ezekiel had a vision that nobody liked. And it was the vision of God's presence departing from the temple. And then Jeremiah had a vision that the temple was going to be destroyed. And both of those things happened because Israel couldn't keep their end of the deal. 
And so Israel uh, is ransacked by a country named Babylon and they're, they're taken captive, they're exiled and Babylon comes in and they burn down the temple. And they exile the people away. Guys, this is God's judgment on Israel. And that's tough, right? It's hard to grasp. And yet, and yet he's still impelled by this radical love for his people that doesn't make sense to us. And after several decades, a remnant, he brings back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. Now I'll tell you, it's a cheap knockoff compared to what was was. But it's a temple. And here's the hard part. God's presence does not fill that temple. It doesn't fill it like it did Solomon's. And so that rebuilt temple, plus the expansions that King Herod made a few years before Jesus' day, is the very temple that we find ourselves in in John chapter 2. I told you I'd get there. Did you hold on long enough? I told you. Here in our passage, we're in this story where Jesus has gone into the temple and he's flipped some tables Now, if you missed last week's sermon, you can go listen to that online. If you want to hear how Jesus flipped some tables, it's pretty cool. We've got a pretty fierce Savior. It's great. But but here, we see Jesus, he goes in and he cleanses the temple of this bartering, of this trading, of this greed. And then as Dave read earlier in our passage in John 2, Jesus is supposedly threatening for the temple to be destroyed. Remember everything that I just said. This temple was central to all that the Jews knew about God. It was central to how they related to and knew their God. It was central to their culture. Huh. And Jesus goes in and he drives out sin and cleanses us of its brokenness and its compromise. Guys, I mean, I mean, Jesus, Jesus, he's a bold dude. That's pretty straight up bold, right? And, 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 and so the Jews, like this is a big deal. The Jews, what do they do? Look at verse 18. Verse 18, so the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? What sign will you show us for doing these things? In other words, in other words they put their hands on their hip and said, what gives you the right? What gives you the right to come in here and mess with our stuff? Or they ask, what sign do you do? You know what that does? It domesticates Jesus. It says, hey, do a trick for us. Sit. All right, roll over. Do something that shows us. And we'll talk more about that next week because we're not going to be done with this passage uh, today. But Jesus tells them what sign he was going to do. He said, here's the sign that proves to you that I can do what I'm doing. Here's the sign. And what does he say? Now remember, remember, He's there in the temple, this building, this precious, historical, culturally central place with everyone watching him and in broad daylight says, verse 19, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And the mob goes quiet and the crickets start to chirp. I can't do it. Oh, well. I tried. Guys, this statement is, is massive and it's dripping with meaning. So what I want to do real quick is just track it through the Gospels. And we're first going to take a look at it here. Because the first 
people to respond to it are the Jews themselves. And what do they respond with? They're, they're discombobulated. They're like, well, what? 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 Come again? What'd you say, Willis? Right? Verse 20. Therefore the Jews said, verse 20, this temple took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? Now, you know, you know, wives, you know that to-do list your husband has has taken about 46 years, hasn't it? You know that renovation project they started, and it just isn't done yet? I started working on my sunroom back at Thanksgiving, and I just hit a wall, and it hasn't been done for months. Yeah, so it's kind of a hard thing, right? The the Jews are saying it took 46 years to build this temple, right? You're going to do it in three days? Come on. Now, Part of me, the, the human Scott Brud part of me, kind of wishes that they were like, challenge accepted. And they took their bulldozers out and their, their sledgehammers and they just started knocking the temple wall down and everything fell. And they just looked at Jesus. Okay, temple man, go build it. Right? Can he build it? Go! But of course they didn't. They took the more reasonable approach. So they're discombobulated. They're like, whoa, okay, what's happening here? We don't get this. Secondly, the disciples of Jesus themselves, at best, are confused by what he says. Because scripture says that they didn't believe what he said until after what he said came to pass. Look at verse 22. It says, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Now, that's just what we see in this text. But this statement is huge because later on, when Jesus is arrested and he's standing trial before the tribunal of Jews and they can't find anything wrong that he's done. People try to come in and start making stuff up. Here's what happens next. It's up on the screen, Matthew 26. Finally, two who came forward stated, this man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So it was this statement that they used as part of Jesus' condemnation to crucifixion. But not only that, later when Jesus was condemned to the cross and he is hanging on the cross and he's bleeding out, those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So not only was this statement used to crucify Jesus, it was used to mock him. All because they were thinking of a building, an old physical temple. But Jesus, Jesus had something else in mind when he said this, did he not? And the author tells us what it is. Look at verse 21. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his what? body the temple of his body guys this isn't just like some some meditative motivational saying that you're going to hear at your hot yoga class one day mm, your temple's a body mm, let it breathe in mm. no it's in the context this is jesus's body being the temple in other words Put it in the context of the whole book. Jesus' body is housing the very presence of God. Jesus' body is housing the very presence 
of God. Guys, we already saw in John chapter 1 that Jesus is God in the flesh, that the word Jesus became human and tabernacled among us, set up tent among us, dwelt among us. Guys, we, we have a name for Jesus. It's what? Emmanuel, right? Which means God with us. So in line with and expanding on this, one of the things that we're going to see Jesus, one of the things that we are seeing Jesus saying today is simply this, that I am the new temple. Can you say that again? One, two, three. I am the new temple. Guys, the old temple that they were standing in, it didn't have the presence of God in it. It had long left ago, long ago. Guys, the old temple that they were standing in was, was, was built by human hands and had been built, had been destroyed, had been rebuilt, and then renovated over centuries. But here, Jesus is a new temple that hosts the presence of God on earth again. A temple that was a person, not a building. A temple that was not made by human hands. And, and, and most importantly, this was a temple that would be destroyed. It would be destroyed. But just once, just once. You see, you see, Jesus said for the Jews, you destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, right? So you destroy this temple. Destroy this body. And destroy it they did. They stripped him of his garments. They beat him. They ripped the skin off of his back. They slapped his head with reed branches. They spit on him. They shoved a crown of thorns on his head. And they nailed him to a wooden cross driving nails through his hands and through his feet. And he was killed by asphyxia. He was suffocated to death. The very God who breathed life into existence stopped breathing. They destroyed him. They destroyed the new temple from God. And they tore it down to the ground and they buried it. They did what he said. We, we did what he said. There's no them and us in this. We're all in this together. Yet, <laughs> that, that was our part of Jesus' sign, right? That was, that was our responsibility. What did Jesus say would happen? Hey, if you do this, I'm going to do this. Watch me, right? So, you destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And three days later, 
a lifeless, breathless Jesus arose from the grip of death. His buried body began to breathe again and he walked out of that tomb alive forevermore. And so this new temple was raised up again. Guys, guys, out of all that the resurrection means for us, this is probably the one that we're not often like, oh yes, we're singing about this one, yay. No, but, but this, is, this is the part that changes everything. This is the truth that I promised you about. Jesus' resurrection shows his authority over the temple. Can we read that again? One, two, three. Jesus' resurrection shows his authority over the temple. They asked, hey, hey, what sign, what trick are you going to do? What sign are you going to do that shows you can do this, right? Destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. This was the sign and he had confirmed it. I love how Matthew Henry put it. Matthew Henry just commented on this passage and, and he, he says it as if he's Jesus. Look at what he says. You that defile one temple will destroy another and I will prove my authority to purge what you have defiled by raising what you will destroy. As Jesus' resurrection from death proves he has authority over the temple, over how God was going to relate to man, how God was going to dwell with his people. In other words, it means Jesus really does have the authority to say, Ah, out with the old stuff. I'm bringing in the new. You remember that theme we talked about a few weeks ago? The old is gone, the new has come. In John 2, we've already seen that Jesus did away with the old purification system and brought in the new celebratory wine. Jesus here is this new temple. Jesus is hosting the presence of God among a broken, rebellious humanity. And he was destroyed by the Jews and he raised to life again to stand for all and forever. Proving he really could change up the temple system. And the disciples remembered this after his resurrection and they believed it. And so do we. Now, is that how the story ends? He's raised no, no, there's more coming, right? Okay, because you got to think about it this way. If Jesus is where you and I have to go to be and experience and enjoy the presence of God, then we need to go where Jesus is. Is he on earth? I don't know. I hope you guys know the answer to that question. Is Jesus on earth? No, no. So what are we supposed to do? What happened after he raised from the dead? He went and saw some people. He freaked some people out, thought there was a, he was a ghost. He ate some fish. He encouraged many. And then he went up in a cloud into heaven. I'm sure the disciples were like, wait, is that it? No, but Jesus had promised something, right? Jesus had promised something. It turns out that Jesus wasn't just the new temple. Jesus was the first of his kind. 
Jesus is the first temple of its kind. This is how Jesus was bringing in a new thing. And this is why Jesus having authority over the temple changes everything, right? Guys, it's a human body that's housing the presence of God here. Not just some building somewhere. And it turns out Jesus' plan wasn't just to raise one new temple. It was his plan to raise countless millions of new temples that house the presence of God. Enter the invasion of the Holy Spirit. The invasion. That's the only word that I could really think of. It is an invasion of the Holy Spirit into our lives. Jesus promised that he was going to go, but that he was going to send something in his place. The Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit is the presence of God. And Jesus promised that the Spirit was going to go in and take residence in your heart. For if you believe in Jesus, if you receive Jesus, that the Holy Spirit would come in and reside within you, would set up its tent in you. And that's exactly what happens. You just keep reading the book, right? Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit of God invades Jesus' disciples. It fills them and it looks almost exactly like it did back when the fire of God fell into the temple of Solomon. And these people are sent out into all the world. And it kept happening again and again. Jesus' Spirit filling people's lives. Which means, track with me, Jesus as the new temple does away with the old temple and makes his disciples the now temple. Let's just go over there. Let me say it again. Jesus as the new temple does away with the old temple and makes us the now temple. You and I, as followers of Jesus, are filled with the Spirit of God. We're filled with his presence here on earth. Uh, Paul, uh, in writing to the Corinthians, is like, hey, don't you know this? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit fills you and it dwells in you? Oh, is it hot in here? Guys, Jesus made a way for us to have access to God again. He atoned for our sin. He made the ultimate sacrifice. And now you and I get to have the presence of God wherever we are. We ain't got to go take a flight to Jerusalem anymore. All that's required is that we be destroyed too. That we die to ourselves and he raises us to walk in newness of life, filled with his spirit. It means that we don't have to go to Jerusalem or Samaria anymore. But like Jesus said to that woman at the well, no, you can worship God wherever you are, both in spirit and in truth. It means right now in this very second, right here in this very room, our creator and our savior's presence is here, filling his people. It means that when you're driving to work or you're shopping down the aisles of Walmart or Target or whatever your preferred grocery outlet really is, wherever you are, you can be sitting at the dinner table. You can be in the shower. God's presence is there with you. 
It also means that when, when people around you experience the you that God has remade and is making you into, people experience God too. And I think most preciously, it means that when you and I, when we get on our knees by our bed at night, or in the morning, or when, when I go up to the top of the mountain to get alone, it means God is pleased to go with me and to be with me there. You know, this, this truth radically reshaped my life. And I want to show you something. This is uh, my preaching Bible. Uh, this does not get marked up. Um, this is clean cut and easy to read. Uh, this is my devotional Bible. Uh, it gets marked up all the time. Uh, there's uh, tear stains on this page. And there's my notes on this page. And in the front of it, uh, I wrote a quote that, um, that I read in a book that drastically changed how I understand my devotional life. And I just want to read it to you. It says this. God is here. Now picture this. I'm on my knees by my bed. or I'm in my office doing my devotions. God is here within these walls, before me, behind me, on my right hand and on my left, and within me. He who fills immensity has come down to me here. I am now about to bow at his feet and speak to him. I may pour forth my desires before him, and not one syllable from my lips shall escape his ear. I may speak to him as I would to the dearest friend I have on earth. Can you feel the weight of that? We get to say that now because Jesus' resurrection shows he has authority over the temple. Like you, you can be in the darkest night of your soul and cry out to God and he's paying attention to you already. As I, as, I, as I read and I listen, as we meditate on God's word and as we pray, we are experiencing the presence of God that has so much history behind it. And we get to enjoy him. We get to, to relate to him. And, and, and we get to be with him more personally and more intimately than Adam and Eve did back in the garden. And I'll tell you what, in those moments when I'm Recognizing and relating to God as here. I find permanent, perfect contentment. I find that thing that I was looking for for so many years out in the world and never found it. I find satisfaction that can't be stripped away. Guys, I'm telling you, it's not going to be in money or sex or power or wealth or fame or accolade or promotion. No, we weren't made by those things for those things. No, we were made by God. 
and our joy and, and the fulfillment of that inner eternal craving is only going to be satisfied by God's presence. Because it's where we belong. We were made for it. So the Holy Spirit is God's presence dwelling in us right now. And you know what's crazy? With, with all the, the joy and the satisfaction that you and I can, can experience when we're in relationship with our God, Scripture says Holy Spirit is just a down payment. You know those dreaded things that you have to make on a car or a house that you can hardly afford? No, this has been paid in full, and it's a down payment, which means what? There's more to come. So what we get now in the gospel is just the down payment of eternity. I'm going to have to agree with my, my boy Frank Sinatra on this one when he says, the best is yet to come. So, you, you Christian in here, you, you who have received Jesus and you're walking in relationship with him, Jesus' resurrection proves he can change up the temple proceedings and, and in his infinite wisdom he's determined to make you and I the temples of God to the world. You know, a reformer named Brother Lawrence back in the 1600s, he says, this is the employment of the Christian. In one word, this is our profession. It's what we do. <laughs> But I also recognize that there may be those of you here today and you've not considered Jesus. Or maybe you have and you couldn't get so far. And I don't know your story. I don't know what you're coming out of or I don't even know what you're currently sitting in right now. But perhaps you feel really far from God. And you feel far from God because and fill in the blank. I don't know, maybe you think you're, you're too dirty, you're too guilty, you're too unlovely, you're too far gone, or maybe you think you're just way beyond rescue. You realize who Jesus spent most of his time with was the outcasts, the uneducated, the marginalized, the sick, the sinners, the traitors, the extorters, and the lepers. You realize that? I mean, do you, do you think you have to clean yourself up enough to get back to God? No, 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 no. God says that he showed his love for you and that while you were still a broken sinner, Jesus died for you. Not once you clean yourself up, he loves you. He already loved you and offered up his son for you. And if he has given his son, will he not also graciously give with him all things? As Jesus was willing to, to pay the price our sin demanded while we were still covered in it. And Jesus' resurrection shows that he, that he paid a payment for sin that was satisfactory. If, if, if his payment for sin on the cross wasn't enough, he'd still be dead and buried. And we could go see his tomb. No, he's alive, which means he could pay for your sin and your brokenness. You're not too dirty. 
And the thing is, Jesus wants so badly to dwell with you. He wants to love you. He wants to be close to you, to be in relationship with you, not because you're good enough, but because He is. And it's because it's where you belong. I mean, can't you see how far God has gone to get you back? I mean, what more does he have to do to prove his love for you? This gift of God's presence coming and residing in us and walking with us in the day-to-day life, Jesus says that that gift is like an infinitely treasurable Uh, infinitely valuable treasure that's worth losing everything for. And if you would simply receive Jesus right now by faith alone, God will graciously, miraculously, and powerfully send Holy Spirit to invade your life and to fill you with his presence, and to tear down the old you, and to to put a new you in its place, a temple that he is pleased to dwell in. All so that one day you can dwell with him forever. All because, and I'm going to say it, and I want it back, he is risen We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.